So I don't know if you're a betting man or not. What, what do you think the over-under is on how long we're going to be seeing the Bernie meme? Oh, God. Uh, maybe another week. <laughs> you think we're going to be over it by the time we get to February, huh? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I I think I would bet over on that one, but I like your optimism. It's uh, something else will happen. Someone will wear something else. And- that's my hope. I mean, some of them are clever, but I'm, I'm already it's it's only been a day and a half, and I'm already a little bit over it. I think this is one of those moments where I can really tell that everybody's locked down and everybody's kind of squirrely for attention because that thing took off real fast. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to episode 252 of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie-loving podcast on my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. One of the things I love about the film-going community and the critical community is the way some people can be so supportive, so accommodating, and so downright friendly. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some cinephiles and critics who will cast some serious shade if you so much as nod their way in a theater lobby. But others, many others, understand that this art form we all love so much gives us common ground and something to talk about. Take today's guest. Years ago, I reached out to him unannounced to gain some perspective and direction before a blind spot viewing of Shaft. I wasn't sure if I was going to get any response, but lordy was I surprised when I got a small tome in return. One thing led to another, and I got to catch up with the man himself at TIFF that same year, and he is every bit as engaging and approachable as that email response had me believe. Like I say, common ground. Dear listeners, I am really excited because my guest today is a writer at large at RogerEbert.com, and he also contributes to big media vandalism and his own space, Ordinary Madness. We are across a wire to Jersey City. Odie Henderson is here. How are you, man? I'm fine. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on. You know, you're, you're big time here, man. So anytime somebody like you agrees to come on, I'm really humbled and appreciate it. I appreciate that you consider me big time. I certainly... Don't know if I'd agree with that, but thank you anyway. <laughs> You're most welcome. Um, one quick show note before we get started. Usually I end the podcast by rhyming off podcast platforms this show is listed on and saying that if you have an app of choice that my show is not listed on, let me know and I'll put it there. My bet is usually by that point you've tuned out. So if you don't know that, don't feel bad. I took the initiative after my last episode. So as of now, along with the usual places that you can find the matinee cast, you know, your Google, your Apple, all those kinds of things. You can also find the show now on TuneIn, Radio Public, CastBox, and Podchaser. So if you use any of those, enjoy my show on that platform. And if you found me through one of those avenues, welcome. I hope you enjoy what you hear. But on episode 252, we will be discussing One Night in Miami. We'll be turning the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Odie. This is Know Your Enemy. All right, man, I've done a whole lot of talking off the top, so let me get some uh, catch my breath here and uh, tell everybody, and I'm also appreciating that this is not going to make me feel old, what is one of the first films that you saw in a theater? I was supposed to go see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the Disney cartoon. Uh, when I was a kid, they used to have a, what they used to call a Disney summer hit parade. It was a Disney cartoon, a classic cartoon, and a movie, you know, one of the movies that Disney would have, like the computer wore tennis shoes. Or something to that effect so it'd be a double feature and i was supposed to go to that but my cousin decided she was going to take me to something else and she took me to the exorcist oh my god how old were you four. Oh god 
Well, that, The Exorcist had been, it, I mean, The Exorcist came out at like Christmas time of yeah. 73, and I certainly didn't see it then. It, I don't even think it played here in Jersey at that moment. Uh, this was like the summer, because, you know, summer hit parade, so it was summertime. And I vaguely remember that. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> okay, so there, there's a lot to unpack here. Was it like you found it funny because you were four and you didn't really understand that what was going on, or you just straight up found it funny and you still do? Well, you know, you're four, so you have no con- – I was raised very religiously, but I'm four. And all I knew <laughs> was that there was a little girl, and she was bad. She said curses. She peed on the floor. <laughs> this was great. My cousin, who was much older, her hair was sticking on top of her head like Don King at the end of the movie. And she <laughs> still had to take me to see Snow White because, obviously, if my mother asked me what happened to Snow White and I started telling her about The Exorcist, we had a problem. So <laughs> my cousin took me to see Snow White, and I was traumatized. It was horrifying. The kids, I would imagine that's how that would go. But now that you tell me it that way, I'm like, yeah, that's actually exactly correct. The, the damn Disney cartoon is what would freak you out. And the horror movie, especially because you don't understand why this girl is like – acting this way and spitting out pea soup or anything like that is just going to seem bloody hilarious. Pardon the point. Right. right. And, <laughs> and so when I was much older and I went to a Jesuit university, so, you know, the Jesuits love the exorcist because, you know, they got the devil out of Linda Blair and put it where it belonged in the Jesuits. Right. Right. Uh, right. And I, you couldn't get me to watch it for a little while. Once I had actually understood it and I'd seen it, I was terrified by it. But now I think I've come back around to it being completely ineffective to me. But hmm. that, that was my, my first movie. And it's kind of yeah. funny that it's that harsh of a first movie, but that's what it was. That's, I mean, that also might just be the craziest double feature I could ever possibly think of being programmed. <laughs> if I ever have a movie. Hilarious. Theory. <laughs> but just so wrong on so many levels. <laughs> All right, uh, let's flip the script somewhat. Um, what is one of the last movies you watched? Uh, I watched American Utopia again, which is my number one. Movie oh, nice! Of last year, is it? Yes. Okay, so we talked. We did talk about it quite a bit uh, a few episodes ago. That was a film that um, my guest and I both loved on that episode. Uh, what uh, I, I, you know, I certainly had it as as one of my favorite films of the year, but not as the top dog. Um, what is it about that movie that that lifts it to the top slot for you? It was just something I kept going back to when things were most dire last year because it was strangely comforting. I always kind of am curious about the films that we reach for you know, in, in stressful times, like one of the other questions in this series of, of um, knowing my enemy is, is what is your sick day movie? Like what is your comfort food? And I've heard all kinds of answers, right? I've heard everything from, uh, you know, I've heard everything from seven to like Lord of the Rings for all kinds of various reasons. Um, But the idea of burn in that show, it's such a hopeful production, you know, like it's, it's just a, it's more or less just a straight up concert with choreography but it's it's just nothing but optimism and hope from from start to finish. Right, and it is very well shot and very well done. And and um, oh yeah, I I had done a piece with Keith Ulick about uh, Married to the Mob because Keith is doing a Jonathan Demme series and getting people to come and talk about the movies, and that's my favorite Jonathan Demme movie, Married to the Mob. And we talked about Stop Making Sense. That I went to see it. You know, I, I snuck into the city to see it, and mm. I because of Siskel and Ebert. That's how I found. I didn't know who the Talking Heads were, right? 
and they had reviewed it on this show and they really liked it and it was playing in New York and I took the train, you know, it's like a 10 minute train ride from where I live, where I grew up here in Jersey City. And I went to see Stop Making Sense, not knowing anything, even though the Talking Heads had been out and they had songs in the 70s and so on, I just didn't know who they were. And I went in, went in blind, you know, such a fun thing to go in blind to a movie that you, you had the opportunity to do that back in the day. And I loved it. And so this is kind of like a bookend to that. Right, right. So I mean, so I mean, that's the other thing too. Along with this production of you know all these all these songs that are so joyous, and I mean the choreography and the staging is so joyous, um, which is kind of what Talking Heads were doing and Stop Making Sense as well. Um, it's also got this this personal for you nostalgia baked right in. Right, and it's also you know I'm from. Like I said, three miles from Manhattan. I grew up three miles yeah. from Manhattan, and I, I go to Broadway shows all the time. And being mm-hmm. stuck, not able to do anything, and having to watch that, it, it had an extra added kind of poignancy because I'm trapped in the house, and we don't know when Broadway's going to reopen. And it was this joyous show, and you could see the audience having such a good time. And then having Spike film them bicycling through the city at the end of the film – it was just so I, I got all up in my feelings about it. <laughs> yeah. I, it's funny. Cause I get, I get those similar sort of um, goosebumps when I flip past uh, Hamilton on Disney plus, because the last thing I did before Toronto lockdown was went to a, produ- went to a production of Hamilton. And I, rem- I remember sitting in the theater thinking to myself, when is the next time I'm going to get to do anything like this? Like it was, it was borderline irresponsible of me doing it that night. Um, And the only reason why I could go that night was because tickets were already being canceled. Like if I told you that I went to a production of Hamilton and I had four seats to the left and right of me empty, it's, it's almost impossible to fathom. But that was, that was my thing is, is, you know, anytime I see that on Disney plus now I'm taken back to that moment of, that's what we did with our time. This is one thing I, I envy you, New Yorkers, is you've got you've got such a culturally rich um, art form right in your backyard. I know I know if I if I lived there, I'd go broke just on shows. And you know, if I didn't, I know my wife would. That's for damn sure. Yeah, they're they're expensive enough to make you go broke. So you know, let's 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 go down to the depths now. Odie Henderson, what is one of the worst movies you have ever seen? Birdman. The oh man, okay. So that's it's funny. That's a movie that hasn't come up. Well, I mean, it certainly hasn't come up as an answer for for that question. And I don't know if that's ever come up proper on this show. Um, I mean, you know, so so we're. I mean, that, that's a that's a lofty swing there because we're talking best picture winner at this point, which you know you can we can argue that until the cows come home. But why why Birdman for you? First of all, I mean, the director, I, I hate him. Uh, his <laughs> his funny his first movie, Amoris Peros, I saw at the New York Film Festival and I liked it. And every yeah. other movie he's made, I've disliked or outright hated and this was just obnoxious and i just couldn't stand it and the whole thing about i hate movies where uh there's a suffering for your art and then he's just so obnoxious with the the drums and the one shot and none of this was necessary and it was just the worst i I thought it was awful i think it's the worst best picture it's worse than crash it's worse than show on earth uh, or on. Oh. If we're going to go for movies that are bad, that one best picture, <laughs> it's worse than Queen. These are fighting words, man. Holy. 
you know, it's like, don't get me wrong. I really dig Birdman and, and for, for what it does. And I listen, I will readily admit that that movie is gimmicky as hell. Like it, it, it doesn't need to try the one shot trick. Um, I, I think a few too many films now are leaning on the one shot trick. And Birdman was certainly one of these, uh, guilty parties of, of, you know, leaning on digital gimmickry to get to, to kind of lend itself some more cachet. Right. Um, in your is a kind of a curious case because you like uh, Amoris Paris is, is, is a good film. And then he kind of goes on this weird little wander for a while. Like 21 grams is okay. Babel is okay. He's kind of doing the same like interconnected thing. And then he does it one more time with beautiful, which I think is a bad movie. And, you know, then he kind of decides to just drop all that and go for movies that include long takes with Birdman and the Revenant back to back. It's a funny little journey that, th- that he's been on for like this whole century, like Amoris Paris was 2000. So his whole, you know, major like his whole feature film career has been since the turn of the century and and it's strange here's where i am with birdman i love it but i totally get why somebody would hate it yeah that's how i feel about raising arizona you know i know <laughs> i love it but i know that like my my mother hated it and that's one of the last movies i saw with my parents uh, and my mother took all of us. Now, by this point, I was almost an adult. Um, my mother took my brothers, who are much younger than me, and my sister. And she just hated it. And we, we dug it. And so, But I can understand why people would hate it. It's an incredibly annoying picture. Right, right. <laughs> I, yeah, my yeah. favorite Collins brothers movie. So. If I think about it in, a, in another perspective, I will say Birdman, at pretty much every turn, is trying really, really hard. You know, like everything about that movie from the performance to the writing to the to the execution, it is showing you how hard it's really trying to make its point. And I do understand how that can really rub somebody the wrong way. Right. And then again, it's the whole RD thing. I'm suffering from my art and blah, blah. I, I, I It's funny because I always joke about the fact that, you know, I have a math degree and I'm a writer and that's really weird. <laughs> it's improper. It should not. You know, this is silly. Uh, for me to have a math degree and be a writer, but I'm also a programmer, but that's, you know, a different story. And I think I don't think I don't have that kind of art, arty mentality. I have a gotcha. very programmer's brain. And so it kind of, when people are like, oh, I'm going to suffer from my art and you're a sellout. And I'm like, you know, no. So it, it, it <laughs> I, I, I am, you know, I always like to say that the instrument of measurement as a critic is corrupt and I'm the instrument of measurement. So I'm corrupt and I'm trying to balance it up by telling you what my bias is. It's fair enough. You know, so that you know, I, I, you know what? It's, it's funny. You're, you're putting in my brain. I do want to like one day record conversations about some of the worst, best pictures, because I think clearly you are a man who has done your homework. When you, when you mentioned some of those titles that are bad and believe me, some of those ones that Odie's just mentioned are bad. I'd love to have conversations about some of the worst, best pictures, because every time somebody comes out and says such and such is the worst, best picture of all time. I always say to myself, you know what? You haven't seen them all. Cause there is some shit yeah. that has that little star on its box. But uh, that's a whole other series of shows. Uh, Odie Henderson, you are a man who is well, like I just said, you are very well versed in film history, but clearly a goal has got past you at this point. What is a classic or essential film that you have not yet seen? It's Lolita. It's Kubrick's Lolita. Ooh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, like, yeah I've, got, I've got a few of those where 
I know I've seen them, but I saw them way too early on like my film going Odyssey and I didn't properly get them. Like there's a bunch of check like boxes that I've checked that I should probably erase and like recheck because it, I didn't fully absorb whatever they were trying to do. Um, Lolita. I mean, it's, it's a crazy movie uh, because I don't think that thing is aging very well at all. Um, it's, it, it's, I will say this much. If somebody were to ever adapt Lolita, that's probably about as best as they can do. So the Adrian line one didn't work for you. No, <laughs> no, it did not. <laughs> but thank you for reminding me of that. Um, I, it's, it's I, the one thing I do remember about Lolita is that um, a few years ago at the Lightbox here in Toronto, they actually had a Kubrick exhibit, which they've probably had somewhere in New York because you guys get everything. Um, and they showed like all, all sorts of like, like they had props and they had notes and they had pictures and they had all like all kinds of stuff from his entire filmography and even from like some of the stuff that he didn't get to do. So they had like right. all sorts of stuff for like Napoleon and that kind of car. They had, um, they had that in Krakow. I they did not have that here in New York. I saw that exhibit when it opened in Krakow. Oh, you get around, dude. Um, so the the one thing I remember about that that I remember several things about that exhibit, but one of the things that sticks out about that exhibit was when you got to the section on Lolita, there were a lot of production stills and um, a lot of promotional stills that were shot in color, and when you show Lolita in color it gets even more uncomfortable in a really big hurry when you're looking at, um, Oh, who the hell was the star of Lolita? Lion. Yeah. Lion yeah. When you're, Lolita. yeah. When you're looking at her in color, it, you're like, this is, this is like 12 kinds of inappropriate, not just six kinds of inappropriate. Um, which I mean, like that's the poster is her in color with those red sunglasses sucking on that. that right, and the lollipop. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that is, I think, really and truly that it's the only thing that allows that film to get away with what it does is that it shoots it in black and white. It kind of does the Scorsese trick of let's make Raging Bull less violent by showing it in black and white because all that blood is just going to really should, you know, send us up a creek. If we show Lolita in black and white, all of a sudden it becomes arty and we're not telling this wildly inappropriate story. The opposite of some like it hot with uh, I've seen yeah. color stills of of Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon and Billy Wilder said he shot it in black and white so that it'd be more believable because in yeah. color they didn't look they looked really really bad as women oh no, yeah yeah they look terrible <laughs> so I I mean you know I would say like listen certainly for academic purposes check it out but it's just like with every passing day all things Lolita just become more and more and more hard to swallow. So it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's kind of becoming those, one of those films where it's like, I saw it when I saw it, I appreciated it for what it was trying to do. But if somebody was saying to me, I've never seen Lolita, should I see it? I'd probably be like, I think you're okay. Right. I mean, I, and the reason why I chose it and thought I hadn't seen it was because I had to read the book university and i did not like it and so again i'm just really burning every art bridge i have here because people love lolita the book and i did not i just thought it was you know kind of sick um and so i think that's kind of why i didn't watch it i didn't go see it you know i I think that's why i'm saying 
I don't have a recollection of it because I probably avoided it. I did see the Adrian Lyon version, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like Kubrick did with everything else, there's changes um, that make it a little bit more palatable, just a little bit, mind you. But um, yeah, it, it's it's like I I I'd be curious to see like where you go with it if you just kind of leave it as an unchecked box and move on for obvious reasons, or if you're like in the interest of science, let's, let's, let's do this. I think it's on criterion. I, I think it's oh, yeah. the Peter Sellers thing. And that was what yep. made, what struck me and made me think, Hey, I don't think I've ever seen this. I mean, good luck. I, I, I support your decision no matter what it is. Um, last but not least for any rhyme or reason, Mr. Henderson, what is a movie you wish you made? I guess if I had to say a movie that I wish I'd made as a director, it would be the blues brothers. Interesting. Okay. Why that one? Well, the Blues Brothers is the first R-rated movie I snuck, I snuck into. Uh, and <laughs> Sensing a it's, trend. It's got all of these stars, these these people whose records that we played at home. So imagine it's 1980, and you're you know a black kid, and you're going to see the Blues Brothers, and on the screen is Aretha Franklin and Cab Calloway, all these people whose records your parents had. And who were in, in, in car crash. I love car crashes. This is something that I, <laughs> I think I love pie fights and I love car crashes. I've, you know, in, in any movie that has a pie fight in it, it automatically is a little more elevated in my book. And so you have great music. You have Saturday Night Live, you know, Blues Brothers from Saturday Night Live. You have all these car crashes and insane things. And of course, this is pre CGI and everything's practical. And it's just so much fun. It's one of those movies that you talked about, you know, that you'd always watch if it were on. That's one of the yeah. movies that I would watch. We say your comfort movie. Yeah. Uh, one of mine. So I guess if I had to say as a director, I'd make something, it would be that the blues brothers. I mean, yeah. Like when you put it that way, really and truly, you know, the blues brothers is a movie that's about two things. It's about music and it's about breaking shit. Right. That's really the only two things that happen in that movie is these guys go on an adventure that is dotted only by breaking shit and playing music. And what else really do you need to do with your time? Nothing. And it's perfect, perfect end of the 70s kind of movie. I came to it later than you. I think I came to this movie when I was around 17 or so. Um, And it was my introduction to some of these artists like, uh, you know, like John Lee Hooker's got a quick little cameo right. and certainly like, you know, all of those uh, Stax legends like Donald Dunn and Steve Colonel Cropper and, and, and Blue Lou on the saxophone and, yes. uh, you know, Willie Hall, all those guys. Like I had no idea that they were like real legends, like real session legends um, until I saw this. And I was like, oh shit, these are guys. Like they, I thought they were actors. I'm like, no, 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 these are actual, you know, real legends like session legends um you know yeah and then on, on top of the, the the artists that i already knew like james brown and aretha franklin and ray charles you know you right. just kind of you take all that and it's it's just you know basically belushi and Aykroyd using it as an excuse to pack all of these idols that they had as kids into one little adventure Right. It's a nice little beautiful labor of love. And it's it's all about anarchy. You know, the, the yeah. 80s beginning, that whole period of slobs versus snob. Well, Animal House kind of started that. Um, but, you know, going into the 80s, you had Caddyshack and all these other movies like Ghostbusters where it was slobs versus snobs. And these kind of things where anarchy was, you know, the model, the, 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 the choice of the day. And Blues Brothers is just nothing but anarchy. 
from beginning to end. And that's what, what I love so much about it. And, you know, when you're a kid, this is even more exciting because it feels so forbidden. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, on top of everything, it's funny as hell. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. It's a great movie. It's a lot of fun. And it's, you know, Ackroyd, they said that kind of he would write these like books, like almost like Kubrick about what all these other things that were not in the movie, like this backstory for the Blues Brothers, like 300 pages of backstory for like one scene in the movie. And, and you kind of, they, they feel lived in, you yeah, know, these yeah. characters. I cannot blame you, man. If I, that's a fantastic answer. I'm pretty sure that's not an answer that's ever been given uh, for that question. But yeah, if I, that, that, that's one that I could totally agree with you on. If I could make one movie, I would totally want to make the blues brothers. So well said, thank you very much, man. Those are some great answers to get us started and, and, uh, and get us into something that I think is going to be a fun conversation. Come on right back after this quick break. We are going to go into the new slang. The new slang is one night in Miami right after this. In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Ever since It's been a long A long time coming But I know A change gonna come Oh, yes it will It's been too one Night in Miami is directed by Regina King. It is written by Kemp Powers based on his stage play of the same name. It stars Kingsley Benadir, L.A. Gorey, Aldous Hodge, and Leslie Odom Jr. One Night in Miami is set in February of 1964. On the one night in question, 22-year-old Cassius Clay, that's Gorey, would defeat Sonny Liston to become boxing's heavyweight champion. Once the fight is over, it's time to celebrate. But instead of a raging house party, the celebration is a whole different thing. Cassius is joined by Malcolm X, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke. That's Benadir, Hodge, and Odom Jr., respectively. Rather than live it up, the men find themselves talking things out, joking, philosophizing, preaching, and questioning on who each of them is at that moment in history and who they might be. One night in Miami didn't happen. Oh, these men were all in the same place in February of 64, and they were friends. But this gathering and these conversations didn't happen, at least not in the way that they are in this movie. But they might have. They could have. At least that's what this film wants us to believe. So pop quiz, Hotshot. How do Powers and King do this? How do they create something entirely fictional and make us believe that it might have happened? Well, it did happen, actually. They did actually meet. They were in that room. We don't know what they said. But they did actually meet that that part of the story is actually true. Uh, Nick Allen, sure. my colleague at RogerEbert.com, he wrote a big piece on Vulture explaining what did and did not happen uh, in the movie. And it's, very, it's a quite an interesting read over at Vulture.com. What, what's interesting about this movie is I like the what if of it. You know, he went off on this fight of fancy, some of which is completely fictional, to think about what these men would have said to one another at this particular period in time. What I love about the beginning of the film, before we even see the title, you see each of those characters go through kind of something bad, if you will. Mm -hmm. Ali gets knocked out, even though he's saved by the bell. Um, You know, uh, Jim Brown goes to meet Bo Bridges and he's a racist. Well, he's more racist than he remembered. And, you know, 
Malcolm X is de- deciding that he wants to break from you know, the nation of Islam, uh, and, and then Sam Cooke is bombing at the Copacabana. So we have this stuff happening at, but before they actually meet up, and they're meeting up to have this celebration because you know Cassius Clay defeats Sonny Liston, something that nobody thought was going to happen, as the movie tells you. And so from that victory, the movie jumps off. But before that, it's interesting to see how Powers and King set it up. Some of this stuff really did happen that were, you know, bad. They weren't bad, but were certainly crises in their lives, you know, that there were turning points they were going to have. Um, And so I like how that sets everything up before you even get them together. They're coming to this room with some baggage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, just to clarify, you're right. Like, you know, these, these four men were in the same spot and they were in the same room, like this meeting of these four friends, they were all friends. It did happen, but you know, like the idea that their com- the conversation went down the way that this script makes it go down is not entirely true. But like you say, like, you know, bringing them together in this way, um, it's, it's believable, certainly by the way of, of it being set up of these, legends like they're all absolute icons and titans just having moments of being taken aback by something again that did happen in their lives like we forget sometimes that some of our heroes fell you know because especially now when we're looking back over the lens of 50 60 70 years we forget about some of the failures of some of these characters um i think to answer my own question they get the spirit right of everybody you know, it's this film never seems to want to consume itself with accuracy. It's not, it's not a biopic, or it's not even a documentary that's looking to put us, you know, to par- to to quote the 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 song that Leslie Odom Jr. is known for singing. It doesn't want to put us in the room where it happened. What it does want to do is embody the spirit of these men and what they were thinking at the time and what they were going through at the time and what America was going through at the time around them be true to that spirit. I've always talked about how a documentary doesn't necessarily need to be right, but it does need to be honest. And when a, when a documentary gets dishonest, that's where it really fails. This film, it may not always be right about what they said, didn't say how they said it, you know, etc. But I never felt that this movie was dishonest. There's a big article about the whole Sam Cooke, Malcolm X debate about what his songwriting is, which is completely fictional. That was completely Powers' doing. Uh, he, he actually created that whole entire conflict. But it's a compelling conflict, and it's a conflict that is bigger than these characters. They're, they're in the room. They're being used, because, you know, this is a play. They're being used not just as themselves, but they're being used also as, I don't want to say symbols, but certainly as representations of what he thought that they might have been going through in this period and what their characters were like and what their personalities like based on what we know about them. So he's having these conversations and these conflicts that may not necessarily have happened between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke, but certainly have happened. It certainly would have been topics of discussion back in 1964. Like to, to put a point on it, you like this movie. Oh, I, I did. I liked it very much. It was. It, it actually was number eleven in my top twenty. It didn't. It didn't make my top ten simply because I didn't see it before I filed my top ten. 
Ah, okay, okay. I I'm, I'm with you. I, well, I I it got up a lot higher for me. Um, this movie, uh, the, this movie made my top five um, of the year, mostly because I actually went in blind. Really, I went when I was looking at movies at TIFF to see. I treat film festivals kind of like my my one time of year where I can go into something without knowing a whole heck of a lot, unless I already have brand recognition of a title or a project before time. Sometimes I just kind of choose markers. And in this okay. case, what I chose was, you know, I just saw Regina King had directed a movie and I like Regina King for like a lot of what she's done. I feel like for a lot of her career, she was just vastly underrated. Um, and I'm really happy to see her getting her props lately, uh, both for performing and now I think for her work behind the camera. So I just saw Regina King had directed a movie and I'm like, okay, I'm going. I didn't know anything else about it. I didn't know Muhammad Ali, didn't know Malcolm X, didn't know Sam Cooke, none of it. I knew it was called something happened in Miami. Regina King directed it. I'm in. So when I let this thing unfold in front of me, I was like, oh, this is what we're doing. Okay, cool. So I got drawn in a little bit deeper. And I think, you know, that was what floated me up a little bit higher uh, off, off the top. Um, just, you know, kind of the pure surprise of it all. I think she did a great job directing it. Um, I was on the Regina King bandwagon a long time ago. In fact, there's a piece on big media vandalism. I wrote in 2008 about Regina <laughs> King. So all the folks that are on the bandwagon, I was there long before you guys were. You're making me work really hard on the show notes for this episode. I hope you know that because like, I'm going to have just like a whole stream of links for everything that you've called out that I'm going to have to dig up. The, the crazy thing about the year that we've just gone through is these subtler movies that in any other year would probably have had so much harder of a time getting their hooks into audiences just because they'd be competing with these other big pictures and prestige pictures, they are getting their moment in the spotlight simply because they're willing to put themselves out there during this weird ass time for films, putting themselves out there. And you know what? Yeah. Take advantage. If you are, you know, if you are one night in Miami and you're saying, we're going to put this onto everybody's TV, if you get Amazon prime and you can watch it in your living room and we believe in it, by all means go for it. And, and I think it does a movie like, uh, one night in Miami, a whole lot of good. No, absolutely, and it's someone can stumble upon it. They may not have had the thought process that they'd go see it in a the movie theater, but since yeah. it's there and available, and I think yeah, I like that she chose people besides Leslie Odom. I, mean, we, I know these actors, you know, Aldous Hodges and Clemency, another TIFF movie, um, and uh, obviously Leslie Odom Jr. is is Aaron Burr, sir. And I like she chose people who were not super duper. Like, like she didn't pick Will Smith and have him play Ali again, you know. And yeah. and for those actors, and I, I reviewed the film at RogerHuber.com, and I talked about the shoes that they're stepping into, not just into the shoes of the characters they're playing, but also into the shoes of, or in the shadow of people who played these roles, or Malcolm X especially. You, know, you have Denzel Washington's performance in the background of everything, like kind of towering over it. And you don't, I don't, you know, envy them having to put this in. Then you have people like Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali, who were bigger, larger in life figures who also were on movie screens. Jim Brown, especially Muhammad Ali played himself badly uh, in the greatest. <laughs> and so they have to step into these characters. And, and I did not have a, a hard time believing 
that they were these people. It was very easy, easily transformed then. Of course, Leslie Odom can sing, so he really did bring that. And it just felt like I was watching these guys, these people. You know, when when we talk about um, Ali and Malcolm X, and when we talk about Will Smith and Denzel Washington, I mean, we're talking about, you know, award-nominated performances. And really, you know, in both cases, great performances. How do you feel that Benadir and Gori competed with that and got beyond what we already have in mind, not only of these two men who, you know, people probably have some sort of impression of by all this footage that's out there of both men, you know, that you can now readily find all the time, but also these two iconic performances. Eli Gori got the Muhammad Ali voice and accent and his braggadocio down perfect. I mean, he was just perfect. He sounded the way he moved. You know, he's younger than Will Smith was when Will Smith played Ali. And he seems to have a little bit more spry. He's, you know, also this is a different period of time. You know, uh, it's the beginning of Ali's career, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think he did a very good job. I think that Benadir has the hardest role to play in this movie. And I think he acquitted himself very nicely just by the passion of how he wasn't trying to mimic Denzel in any way. He was basically coming at it from almost like a, a more theatrical performance. You know, Denzel played Malcolm X before he did uh, the movie he played, When the Chickens Come Home to Roost, which is a play. Um, he did that on stage. So he had played Malcolm X once before in a more kind of One Night in Miami type situation. Right. So I think there's a the big difference between, you know, uh, Malcolm X is an epic, and Denzel Washington is giving an epic performance. And this movie, it's not an epic, and this is a, I don't want to say smaller as a negative thing. I think it's a more intimate performance. I think one thing that this film doesn't concern it with is getting a physical impression. Like, if Gori doesn't look exactly like Muhammad Ali, like if he's a little taller or a little heavier or a little darker, a little lighter, what have you, the film is unconcerned right. with that. It's more concerned with the mannerism, certainly with the speech, which he nails. Like, anytime he says, I'm so pretty, yeah. like, I'm like, yep, you got that. Yeah, you, I, I know how that one goes. And I think the other thing that this film does that really helps these these actors nail these performances um, and you alluded to it already, is putting them in this more intimate setting. It lets, you mentioned this in your review, it lets these men be men. It doesn't concern itself with their public persona. And there is a moment where Ali steps out of the suite and he's got to talk to the press and you hear him like, turn it on, right? It's less about the, you know, capital M Malcolm and capital C Cassius as it is about how these men would interact with one another. And that allows these performances to find a you know different frequency than we had to find with Smith and Washington because they all had to primarily be the bigger version. You mentioned I, I cheated and I read your review before we sat down to talk tonight. So um, first of all, good work. Um, it's a gr- it's a great piece. But you talk about in your piece um, the nature for these black men of a safe space. What's great about the movie is that you, you don't get to see this very often in the film because a lot of times, you know, you got one black person in a movie and they're surrounded by white folks or, you know, they don't have this kind of interaction unless it's a movie where it takes place in a specifically black, you know, universe or, or a specific black event. 
you will have this type of thing. But in, in kind of a movie that is just looking for a wider audience, you don't really mm-hmm. see this. You really ever get the opportunity to see people interacting with one another, especially minorities. You always get to see white folks doing this. They, you know, there's a million white buddy comedies where they interact and there's one black person there. And it's a completely different vibe than when you have this particular scenario where these four black men are here and they're in this room and they are able to talk to one another like they're at the cookout. My aunt who worked in an office used to say, I'm coming home and I'm taking off my face for the white man. And what she meant by that was that when she was out there in polite company, as my mother used to always say, um, you had to act a certain way. Well, you had to present yourself a certain way. You felt comfortable presenting yourself a certain way. That's the opposite of what you're presenting when you're at home, you know, and you can do that. And so for these guys to have that ability to talk to one another safely and also to kind of read each other on their BS, you don't ever see that in the movie. And I I thought that that was what was so compelling about it was that not only did they have something to say, what they had to say was, you know, they joked with each other, they ribbed each other, but they also, they were comforting each other. You don't ever see that in movies of men, especially not men of color. Um, They were able to be angry with one another and then come back and try to reconcile with that or to still be angry with one another, but to kind of, put that aside for the moment and you rarely ever get to see this and that was what was so beautiful about the movie was that it really didn't care who else was watching you know when 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 school days came out roger said something that i thought was really um interesting he said that this is a movie that didn't really care about the white gaze and i think this movie has a similar premise in that you can be a fly on the wall no matter what color you are but it's not going to translate the things that you may not get because you're not part of this universe. One of the things that this safe space um, does in this movie that it's really beautiful and it's not something you see very often is that it really underlines for anybody who watches this movie, regardless of like what kind of audience it is, it really underlines what men can be, you know, like, I mean, these are, Really and truly, these are four alphas. These are four absolute icons at like all of them really at the top of their game and how they talk to one another. And like you say, how they disagree, how they solve, like even if they don't solve their differences in that night or that moment, how they don't let the difference fester and just blow up a relationship, you know, but like how men can talk to one another. I feel as though this is what this movie underlines. Obviously I have no experience of like, you know, being a person of color, talking to other people of color. So I I can't comment on that, but I can comment on how men talk to one another. And let's just face facts. It's bad. Generally speaking, if we can even talk at all, it's terrible. But this is the kind of movie that says, you know what? These men who you look up to, they probably talk like this with one another. And if they could, act that way in front of cameras and act this way with each other, you probably can too. There is a tenderness to it and it's not judged as being soft or as being feminine or anything like that. All these things that movies always constantly tell you and that, you know, sometimes your family members would tell you, you know, you can't be soft if you're a boy, you know, get up, you can't cry, you can't do this. And then a lot of 
movies kind of channeling that. And this has the kind of maturity to show that these men are friends. They need one another because the world out there is, you know, against them in a lot of ways. And to have that little support system is very important. And I think that's kind of the bottom line of the movie, I think, is that, that for one night, these men who were friends got together and they aired grievances and they shared their concerns and their fears with one another. And the movie does not judge them in a negative fashion for that. Definitely not. Like, I mean, the movie actually even goes one step further and states you know, the, the opposite ideal. Like, what is it that Smith says to Cook when they're in the car, they're outside of the liquor store, and he's talking about what they want, and what they want is just the acceptance to be black. Yeah. And, and for Sam Cook, and, you know, for him being, as, as they said, kind of the biggest star out of all of them at this moment, because, you know, he had he had his own record label. He had songs in the no, Chain Gang is 1960. This is 1964. So he'd been around, yeah. and he had driving this fantastic car so he's more money than any of these other folks that he's right. talking to and yeah brown actually puts a point on it and he says he's the only one of us who's not waiting on a white person to pay him right and if people forget that you know before there was free agency football players didn't get paid shit yeah and so you yeah. want you had, a, you, had a, you had a job like you know you after football season was over you went back to work you know you're working in the, in, in the factory or whatever it was back then i mean obviously jim brown was a, a star so when he mentions that he's getting paid 37 grand for this movie that he's only in for half of because he gets killed that's a lot more money than you know him getting hit a million yeah. times although it may, it may not have been but it's certainly that point they were making in the movie was that there's more money in, in film and it's easier on his knees as said. <laughs> it's a it's a really great way of putting it. Um, you know, we we touched on Regina King already, but I I'm I gotta really tip my hat to her direction in this movie, and I think that if you put this movie into a lot of other hands, it wouldn't be near as good as it is because you know when you've got when you got four male egos in the room. I, I, I gotta believe that one of the best ways of getting this kind of vulnerability out of all of them is to get a woman to call the shots. Well, you know that I was going to bring that up in respect of a different viewpoint. If you look at something like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, yep. you're going to go with something that you know be more masculine and dirty. There's a completely different gaze to that mm-hmm. movie, that, or, or to that movie, or to something like Real Genius that Martha Coolidge directed. Then you'll get for Porky's. So regardless. Yeah. Whether or not I'm not saying that women make softer movies or anything, so I'm not definitely not saying that. What I'm saying is that her choices, just because of who she is, just like if I made yeah. a movie, my choices would be because of who I am. I think that she is giving them permission in some ways, maybe not not consciously, maybe subconsciously, that she's in the room and she's directing and these men are here acting. And maybe they'll bear a little bit more of their soul for Regina King than they would for, you know, Spike Lee. That, I mean, that is really what I was getting at. Not to say that, like this movie, it's, it's funny, like this movie is not soft. This is not the, you know, this is not a, a, a cushy, feel good, gooey kind of movie. Like this, this movie is, is, this movie is what this movie needs to be. I just, you know, I do believe that 
first of all, I do believe that the working dynamic changes anytime you get a mix of genders in the room. I, I really do believe that no matter what the working environment is, if it's an office, if it's a studio, if it's, you know, a sports team, I don't care what it is. Anytime you get one person of the opposite sex into the room, the rest will change. And, so, and whether it's one guy into a group of women or one woman into a group of dudes, I think the attitude and the approach is going to change. And, you know, sometimes for the better, not always, but sometimes. And like you say, I believe that she guided them to where they needed to go. We're talking about kind of a hard target to hit because you are talking about, as we've said, four really iconic men about, you know, people who there's lots of material on to, to understand who they were and compare it back to. And you're trying to get them to a level of honesty that makes us feel like we are seeing something that we're not supposed to see. That's a hard bullseye to hit. So I do believe that she had to be in the room. And like you said, Spike Lee wouldn't have got it. And that's not to say Spike Lee is a bad director. Far from it. Spike Lee has got some incredible performances out of some incredible artists. But I don't know that he would have necessarily hit this target as hard as King hits this target just perhaps because of how she was able to talk to these guys. Right. And also she has the added trouble of having a movie that's basically in a room you know so a lot yeah. of this is taking place in the hotel room there's a couple of excursions outside that she sets up you know but for the most part most of this movie is in that room and it never becomes claustrophobic it becomes no. more like more intriguing actually that the space actually works to its favor rather than against it. And, and if you look at how she lays her shots out in several instances in that room, by the time the movie is like three quarters of the way over, you pretty much know where everything is in that room. All right. You have such a familiarity. I love movies where they lay out the geography for you so that when they come back to it, you the vast of night does a really good job with this, um, where it lays out kind of the geography of that town. So when people start running through it, you know exactly where they are. I think Regina hmm. does that a lot in this film where 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 the closet is, where the record player is, where the refrigerator is, the vanilla ice cream, how it's set up. And she really does give you that layout. And by the time you become so familiar with it that it almost becomes second nature, like you're in the room with them. And that takes some doing in terms of how she's framing and the shots that she's choosing and the editing and so on. Um, and I think that she really does a good job of making it feel intimate, but not stagey speaking of stagey like we're talking about this is a play that is turned into a movie it's sometimes it's hard to understand the value of something like this like this is not the first movie that's done this where it's basically adapted a play straight up um and 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 kept it as economical as as the play has been you know like you can take a play you can take you can certainly take a musical and build it out like you can take a musical like sound of music and, you know, actually get it onto the hills. Um, or you can do something like this where you take a play that's in a room and just keep it in the damn room. Is it, do you think that it's, it's a hard to push the value of these kinds of films where you're basically just watching a play? Like, you know, imagine that you're the average film goer. Would you feel that you got your money's worth dropping down 16 bucks to see this in a theater? Well, on stage, I would have paid a hundred. But well, yeah. more importantly, <laughs> I talk. Uh, I talk about this when I in my review of Fences. Um, I talked about how I didn't think Denzel Washington opened the play up as much as he opened the space around the play. So basically, mm. I don't have a problem with things that take place in one room, things that are overly theatrical. 
where they have a theatrical feel to them, this is not necessarily a bad thing. And a lot of critics say it's a bad thing. I completely disagree with this. And that mm-hmm. if you look at something like, say, you know, like a one-man show like Secret Honor, right. the Nixon movie, or you look at something where it is based on a play and that play, it elevates. Like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is another example. Um, it elevates the, the words because these words are meant to be spoken and acted and emoted by actors. Shakespeare is not docile yeah and Shakespeare is not understated and a lot of times you know critics think that well it's a movie it has to have explosions and it has to be bigger a lot of movies that were based on plays screw up by doing the exact thing that we're talking about the opposite exact thing we're talking about opening up the play putting all these extra things in it it's not necessary you know, yeah. if you're compelling enough, the words are compelling enough, people will listen. That's why I said in my review of Fences, I didn't really give a damn where the camera was because I was so busy watching Viola Davis give me her heart and soul. And out of August Wilson's words, you know, pierced me. Billy Wilder said famously, if someone says that something is well directed, that is proof that it is not. Probably means that it was most directed. Exactly, um, most directed is not the same as being. As, that, yeah. I think Naruto shows us many, many times. Sorry, <laughs> I hope taking no prisoners tonight. I think for me, when I think about um, a talkie play as movie, the one of the things that I always come back to is, if anything, it allows the director to take this production and make it more intimate because. Any play you go to, no matter how small the house, the actors on stage need to be able to project to the back of the house. Yes. And they need to live a little bigger. They need to speak a little bigger. They need to gesture a little bigger. It's why if people watch a lot of classic film, you know, and I'm talking when I say classic film, I'm talking about the era of like you know, 1930 to about 1950. It's why actors. Yeah. It's why the actors seem to be acting a little bigger because they did, you know, like you're basically trying to get them to untrain themselves and it just ain't possible. So when you get into this era, now you're able to get these performances in a different light. You're able to get a little closer. You're able to get a little quieter. You're able to get an intimacy that even in very small off, 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 off Broadway theater, you would not get, and I believe there is tremendous value in being able to watch how Malcolm holds his face and tremendous value in being able to see how these two men pray. And, you know, even sometimes to like, you know, he points out like you're, you've got your hands wrong, like that kind of thing. That was a great detail. It's a beautiful detail. And, and you know, this movie is able to give these things a grander canvas to play on these small details get bigger meaning and bigger impact because you know you're basically you're you're in the smallest theater possible with really an audience of one and that one is the camera i think it becomes harder when you have something small like this when an actor has it's just the actor and the camera and there's Mm -hmm. no music and you notice there's not a lot of music in this movie. There's no music. No. There's no no cue to tell you what you're supposed to feel. So now you're trapped. It's almost like the actor is naked. And all they have is their instrument, their acting, their voice, their body. And the camera's going to fixate on that while they have their scenes. And, you know, you, there's 
again, I love how some so much this movie is framed when when it's just Jim Brown and Malcolm X in the room, and Malcolm X kind of breaks down, and Jim Brown says, you know, talk to me, and you see the intimacy of that. It's just he's in kind of the the camera's kind of on him, but you have that little piece of, of Malcolm X there in, in, in the corner and he reaches out to him and you really can see like the expression on, on, on Hodge's face and the, almost his eyes almost welling up. This is right here in front of you. And it becomes so, you know, almost like you want to look away. It's smaller on the, on the, on the screen, which is kind of strange to say, considering, you know, how big, much bigger a movie screen is, but you have to play that smaller. I mean, like yeah. the, the the, for example, the, the producer's movie that they made the, of the musical, not of the, the 1960s version. Um, right. Everybody in that movie pitches it, I guess, at the back of the theater. And that's why it's not good because everybody <laughs> is so over the top that it suddenly becomes like, I'm right here, Nathan. <laughs> so, I'm going to start using that. <laughs> um, I mean, the one thing I do have a question in terms of. Uh, you know, I don't really, really want to call it a flaw, but it's just something I've, I've noticed watching this film again for the second time in preparation for this show. Do you feel like Jim Brown as a character in this film kind of gets a little bit short shifted? Like the other three seem to be doing either a lot of the arguing or a lot, a lot of the lifting Brown. I mean, he's got a very specific role within this quartet, but I wonder if that role is a little too diminished sometimes. I don't. I don't think so. I'll tell you why. Okay. I mentioned in my review about Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor has all these routines in his comedy albums about Jim Brown. Jim Brown telling to tell him to get off the pipe. Jim Brown coming to yell at him, not to yell at him, but to kind of like scare him into uh, doing right. And Jim Brown was just stoic. He was just stoic, and he just comes in and says, "What are you going to do?" To Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor is flipping out, and all Jim Brown says is, "What are you going to do?" And that stoicism seemed to be a part of his character, not just of his public persona, but it seems to be of his private persona as well. And I think in a group of people, you need that guy. Everybody else is kind of bouncing off the walls, and he is your center of gravity. And and and, and, and gravitas at some points, he's kind of there to say. You know, what are you going to do? So I don't think it's a short shift of a performance. I think it actually works in that if we can look at these characters as types for a second, he's that kind of type of a person where you could depend on him. You could lean on him more than anybody else. And I think that Hodge plays it that way. It kind of telegraphs it early on with the Bo Bridges scene Mm -hmm. about how he's able to be strong and internalize his pain, but also to kind of reflect it back as a strength to show that I am immovable. If I'm understanding you right, I I think one of the things that you're saying as well is that this is a movie where Cook, Malcolm, and Cassius do a lot of talking at one another and a a lot of yelling and a lot of pleading and a lot of joking. But with all that talking going on, somebody's got to be listening one of the things I'm learning as I get older is that it is really, really hard for some people to truly, truly listen. And I believe what you're saying is in this story, Jim Brown, and it's a hard role to play. Jim Brown is there to be the listener. He's the, he's the way he's the mediator. He's not this, I don't want to say the judge, but he certainly is the person who 
if you said, okay, settle this dispute between me and this guy, he doesn't really have a dog in the fight that the that's personal a dog in the fight. I mean, he has a yeah. dog in the fight on a macro level, but he's yeah. able to kind of distance himself from these two arguments. So a lot of times, if you notice, he winds up being kind of not necessarily the peacemaker, but he's the the mediator. Again, he's the guy that they're bouncing off of. And the fact that he doesn't lose his cool is incredibly important because then you would have chaos if he did, because you have to have some center. I will say that the one thing I do think is unfortunate is this movie playing on a big screen in, in markets that have that ability would allow people to lose themselves in it a little bit more and catch those subtleties that you've been talking about an awful lot in terms of how Brown speaks and how Malcolm speaks and how King captures it all. Um, you know, when you're at home, even if you're the kind of person who, when you're at home, you put your phone across the room and you turn off the lights. So something as simple as like your pet walking across the room can take your, can take your focus, right. you know? And I feel like a lot of those intricacies that are, that are baked right into this movie are going to get lost on the couch. Right. No, no, I, I agree. And it's, it's interesting that people talk about watching, you know, there's a big controversy about Tenet. And, you know, I, I did the Slate Movie Club this year and I talked about Tenet and how I thought that Chris, if I seen it in the theater, I still wouldn't have been able to hear the dialogue. It just would have been louder. It would just as unintelligible. And I talked about how my movie love was fostered not just by me going to the movies back, you know, these old movie palaces that had become in disrepair by the time that I got to them. But a lot of the, my movie love comes from me watching these movies on the, the crappiest black and white television that my parents got from two guys department store. And I just was able to fall in love with them. It wasn't the medium that I was being delivered, was being delivered to me. It was the movie that was being delivered to me. And, and yeah. I think a lot of ways I would hope that people would, it wouldn't distract them enough, you know, to, to take it away from the movie. But I agree with you that in the movie theater, this is going to be bigger on the screen. I think it would be more intimate the more the bigger it was blown up. As yeah. crazy as that sounds, it would be even more intimate. You could fall into it even more. Yeah, you're right. It still plays. Like it's still, you know, you could watch this. You could watch this on a train on your phone, and you might still find yourself weeping and missing your stop. You know, the one other thing that I want to get to before we let this film go is there. You know, we we do spend most of the time in this room, but I gotta really tip my hat to the one moment that this film gets showy and decides to get out of that room and take us to Boston when Sam Cooke was singing Chain Gang. Oh yeah, and the another fabrication, of- and that's a great fabrication. <laughs> and tell people, well, tell people why. I think it's a great fabrication because when Malcolm X is telling this story and he talks about the power of Sam Cooke being able to move people with his music and his voice, he has been robbed of his voice and his music because they can't hear him, and having right. him get that crowd to that was against him. I remember the crowd stolen stuff at him at this point. He was able to get the crowd to start stomping and doing the chant in the song and everybody started doing it and suddenly it became this community event and there's a shot in the movie where King pulls the camera back and she pulls it through the audience and she doesn't pull it through the entire audience. She pulls it through about maybe eight rows of people before she cuts to, uh, I think she cuts to the back and you see Malcolm X. But just that the importance of that, of her having 
him be the center of it and slowly get pulled back and get consumed by this crowd of people it's kind of showing the power that he has yeah like what i was saying earlier it's it's honest it may not have factually have happened but it's honest in terms of what sam cook could do and what he may have had to do at some point or another in his career if not necessarily exactly in this way i mean it's certainly honest of the power of music in the 1960s because let's face facts these artists were playing in venues that were not designed the same way they are designed now and you know i think about something like the beatles playing shea stadium people at shea stadium couldn't hear shit but the beatles united them all it's the same sort of thing in a lot of these theaters the sound system wasn't that strong or the acoustics weren't that amazing. So Sam Cooke, as as powerful as his voice was, trying to project anything past the first eight rows of people stomping and clapping just wasn't going to happen. And yet you understand the power of some of these iconic artists to still captivate an audience, even though they couldn't be heard. Right. You know, it's like just the whole point of going back to Hamilton, being in the room when it happens. I think that sometimes is even more important than actually being able to consume the, what, what you're in the room for. I'll give you a great quick example and you probably can edit this out, but when I went to see Dreamgirls, it was my eighth grade graduation present. My aunt took me to see Dreamgirls. So by this point, that song was huge. Yeah. And so Jennifer Holiday was still doing the role. And so I will never forget this as long as I live. She started singing and I'm telling you I'm not going. And all I heard was, and I am telling you, and that was it. You couldn't hear anything else. And it's not a quiet song. It's a loud as hell song. I couldn't hear anything. The audience, I thought the theater was going to collapse around me. That was the 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 fear of the people. That was their reaction to this. And I could not hear anything else that she said after And I Am Telling You. And I just was in that room in that moment. And I felt like something had happened and I was there. It was an experience. And I mean, that, that I believe that that's why we, that's why we, engage in culture that's why we go to concerts that's why we go to sports is is it's an experience of being there of connecting with these other people and fixating on these iconic men and women that have the power to move an entire room full of people just with their you know just with their command of presence at this point in the review we always get to the souvenir something tangible or intangible if you could pluck out of this movie and keep you would odie henderson what would be your souvenir for one night in miami I want that car. I want the red car. <laughs> you're 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 in New York, man. You guys you can't park anywhere. Why do you want a car? I I, I got a garage here. I, I wouldn't. Be okay. I wouldn't. You didn't say where I had to be to get the car. Right. Right. I want that, and I want Malcolm X's camera. So if I can't have the car, at least I can have something I can afford. <laughs> oh, see, man, not, like now you're now you're stealing my answer because I did. I, I loved Malcolm's camera. Um, I've I've played around with that camera, uh, not you know, that model, um, a few times in my photographic uh, education. Um, it is a beautiful little piece of engineering. I I love. I mean, that's one of the things I love about this movie is how it paints Malcolm as this shutterbug, like how he's always toting his camera around and taking pictures. I mean, when you Which think that, like, it was true. No, it's it's absolutely absolutely factual. It's just one of those things I love that the movie has the time and attention to do is when you, you know, if you asked 
20 people in a room, what's a word that you would describe Malcolm X with? You could probably go five or six rounds around the room before you get to photographer, you know, and and yet that is a key part of who he is. And I even love that they have this moment of playing keep away with his camera. We rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars, Odie Henderson, Regina King's One Night in Miami. What do you give this movie? Uh, I three and a half. I gave it three and a half stars uh, out of four. Okay, I'm I'm a little warmer on it than you. I give it a four. Um, I, again, I think it's just because of my initial coming to it with with like no like nothing in the tank. Just show me a movie, and I was just knocked out, and I'm still knocked out. And I do believe it's one of the best movies of the year. We both obviously really really love it. Whether it's three and a half or four, we both have nothing but good things to say about this movie and uh hey if you're if you use amazon prime the good news is it's in your living room right now and um you can you can watch it as we speak hey maybe you think we're crazy maybe you think that we're totally overselling this movie uh maybe you think that we're not selling it enough let me know what you think ryan at the matinee.ca twitter i'm matinee underscore ca or facebook.com slash dark matinee what do you think of regina king's one night in miami we are going to take a very quick break right here and uh, come back with the other side and talk about more movies right after this. Come on back, won't you? We're back. He's Odie Henderson. I'm Ryan McNeil. It's Matt Nacast 252. We've been talking about Regina King's One Night in Miami. Uh, this is The Other Side. It's our chance to go further down the spiral and talk about some companion films, some complimentary films, some other titles that uh, might have some good things in, com- in common with this movie after you watch it. Uh, Odie, why don't you get us started? What do you think is a, a good place for somebody to go after watching Regina King's movie? Well, I, my, the first thing I thought of when I was watching this movie was uh, a Spike Lee movie that a lot of people didn't see uh, called Get on the Bus. And I, I think it was the first of Spike Lee's movies that he didn't write, that he directed. This is written by Reggie Bythewood. And it's about the Million Man March, so it does have a bit of a tie to the Nation of Islam in this film. But the bigger thing, and the reason why I thought of it, was because it is a movie about a bunch of black men together talking in a safe space and being open with one another and having different types of personalities. There's conservatives, there's liberals, there's all these little side stories going on. But the, the heart of it is basically an entire film that's very talky and has very takes place in very few sets of these men just talking to one another and hearing them talk to one another and seeing what they're about and learning about them and just listening to them. I think this is a great companion piece to this movie. And that again, it's a similar premise of you being a fly on the wall and hearing people talk in a movie that you don't really ever get to hear. Spike's career is kind of interesting because he came out of the gate, like, so hard and so fast and you know with with, with uh, like all of his like kind of his smaller films with like um uh school days and, and and those kinds of films like right up to do the right thing and once he comes to do the right thing then he's like really really clicking on all cylinders and suddenly he's you know bigger than life he's getting award nominations and he's getting a lot more attention um right at the right time and then that really kind of bubbles up even higher with malcolm x which he's able to make this much more grand picture and then he kind of goes down a very personal path for several years, you know, and he makes stuff like 
get on the bus and he got game and you know those kinds of even jungle fever and those kinds of movies and this is kind of right in the middle of that right before he even kind of pivots to even more personal movies like you know like his documentary four little girls and because of spike is now you know he's kind of having a great moment in the sun again really late in his career with stuff like, you know, getting his first competitive Oscar and this year being in a prime position. By yeah. But I mean, in the middle of it, I, he's got these really, really personal and interesting movies that I kind of feel like if you're a younger film goer or if you're a film goer, who's not familiar with Spike Lee, get a little mixed in the shuffle. I mean, not to mention the fact he's wildly prolific. You know, this is a guy who's got 63 credits under his belt over the course of his career. Um, and I kind of feel like get on the bus is one of those ones that it gets kind of shuffled to the middle of the deck. Yeah. It's, it's smaller and it's also kind of in its own bit. It's a product of its time because of where it's taking place and when it's taking place. It doesn't make it a lesser movie. I gave it four no, stars. No. Um, I think it just speaks to a particular moment, but I, I think it has Spike Lee's most powerful image in it and it's hmm. interesting a movie that most people haven't seen it is the final image of get on the bus i think is the most powerful image spike is shot it has been one of those ones i've always wanted to see for quite some time so i'll make it now based on your say so i will make it a priority um my first uh other side for this movie was kind of getting back to what we were talking about with um a female director telling a male story um and and the the stereotypes that go with that. Like, you know, like we were talking about how there's an assumption that a female director is going to take is going to tell a movie soft, which is a bad assumption and, and was not you know anything that I was trying to make an assumption of. But I think there is an assumption out there of what types of stories women tell. And, you know, if you were to talk about this kind of movie, I don't think it's what's that assumption. So I tried to think about other movies that have include the female gaze that are very, very, masculine macho movies and i came back to one that i actually just saw for the first time a few months ago um i went back to 1999 and thought about beau travail by claire denis it's you know it's not what one would think of as like a a a prototypical movie shot by by a female director and i think that's that's what first of all changes all of these perceptions um in the right way and you know it's 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 about this it's about this platoon it's about this foreign legion platoon that you know you watch how they interact you watch how this one officer looks back on his life and how the camera sees these men and how the camera lingers on everything from how they do their training to how they dance you know it's you talked about a great final shot this is another movie that has a great final shot that that uses a song that was really big at the time um, in, in a really great way and I think that, you know, as, as, a, as a double feature of two really, really talented women behind the camera, um, that uh, there's a lot of subtle commonality between One Night in Miami and Beau Travail. Oh, that's, that's a very interesting choice. Now, the, while you were talking, I was thinking about it. I, I have seen it, seen it a couple of times. I'm not the biggest Claire Denis fan. And one day I'll tell you a story about my interaction. I run in with Claire, <laughs> Miss Denis. But uh, this is one of her movies that I actually do like a lot. Um, and I, I didn't think of it that way. But now that you brought it up, it really does kind of, kind of sink in. It really does kind of click with this movie as something that 
Yeah, I, I could see that. That's thank you for even allowing me to think about how these two movies play together. It's what I'm here for, man. Um, what else? What else you got? What's another movie that somebody could go on to after One Night in Miami? This is a strange choice on my part, but I thought it made sense. It was Poetic Justice. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I think this is the movie where Regina King really kind of took off and kicked some ass in the movie. But, but more importantly, you know, it, this is the weird movie that John Singleton made, you know, after this is his school days. Although technically higher yeah. learning would be his school days, but that was his third movie. <laughs> uh, you know, in, in terms of this is a road picture. Again, something you don't get black people in. It's a road picture that just meanders all, all over the place. And it just doesn't really have, it almost feels European in that regard, that it's just almost like an Eric Romero movie. Um, you, I said that it played like Eric Romero and it swore like Richard Pryor. That's what I said in my obituary about John Singleton, about this, in his, his obituary about this movie. But what it does is, again, you're in this truck, in a postal truck, driven by Tupac. And Janet Jackson <laughs> is in this, and you have Joe Torrey and Regina King in the back, and you just get to listen to them talk. Now, this is not just men. It's men and women talking, and it's obviously filtered through a man, through John Singleton, which doesn't necessarily make it, you know, accurate or even, you know, some, sometimes a little bit, you know, uh, uh, troublesome. But, I mean, I love the movie. I love listening to these people talk. I know these people. And, again, it's just you're in this confined space and you have to listen to these people bounce off each other and what they have to say about life, about relationships, about themselves, what they don't say. And then there's little pit stops. There's a, they go to a cookout. There's a couple of other things that happen. But for the most part, you're trapped in this truck with them on this road trip. And it plays that you have to kind of just sit with them and, Regina King has kind of, I think, the showiest role in the movie that could go completely wrong. and She just plays it so wonderfully. And I think that's kind of like, I wonder if she was thinking when she's making this movie about maybe what a direction she got from John Singleton or a moment where she clicked with her character that she wanted to convey to her actors in something on this small of a scale. And I think it's also an underrated film that I would go to bat for. I think another thing about Poetic Justice is that it's a movie where the lead actor, Tupac, um, along with like not being known for his acting necessarily, um, here was a rapper who was, again, like an alpha pers- persona, you know, like rap by nature right. is very, very much about a whole bunch of alphas trying to out alpha each other. And you're trying to drop him into a personal, romantic, um, emotional performance. And it's like, okay, how do I get this guy there? Now, you know, Tupac, as, as a man, was more evolved than your average rapper just because of his education and how he was raised and how he was able to express himself. So, you know, it, it, it was probably something where who he was on stage and who he was behind the mic. That was the act, you know, getting him to be more of himself. That may have taken a little bit more direction and say, okay, you know what? This is who we need here. And that kind of has that commonality in terms of how Regina King was able to get the, you know, very emotional performances out of the leads of one night in Miami and what Singleton got out of Tupac in poetic justice. 
I thought Tupac was a good actor. I mean, I think he's great in Juice, which is a more kind of standard, I'll say stereotypical, but I don't mean it negatively, role that you would expect him to play. And then you have sure. something like Gridlocked, Vonnie Curtis Hall's Gridlocked, which is a great movie um, where he and Tim Roth are trying to get you know, into rehab and how the, the, the character he plays and what type of character he is is completely unexpected. You would not expect him to play that part. I always thought he was a better actor than they gave him credit for. He was, he was better everything. It's like, we really, we really are lesser for the fact that he's already gone because I can only imagine just like what he would have done. Um, well, one of my other, other sides was I thought about the fact, like we were talking about in our review of how this was, um, a film based on a stage play. And there's all kinds of films over the course of cinema history that are based on a stage play. Um, but I went to something more recent that I again, kind of think has gotten mixed in the shuffle. And I went back to 2008 and thought about doubt directed by John Patrick Shanley. Actually, when I did my Q and a with John Patrick Shanley at Moonstruck, I had him sign my copy of doubt. Well, how about that? There we go. Um, this is a movie with Meryl Streep, Phil Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, Viola Davis, and then a whole bunch of other people who show up for a minute or two. And this movie is just an absolute acting clinic with everybody acting from the neck up. Like, you know, you've got two nuns, you've got a priest, and you've got Viola Davis coming in and basically just clobbering everybody in one scene. It's not an old movie. It's, you know, 2008. It's just 12 years old now or 13 years old if you're going by 2021. But it's a movie that I kind of feel really quickly receded into people's memories, even though it got like a ton of award attention. And again, it's the kind of thing where it takes what was on a stage, it puts it on a bigger canvas and puts you in a dark room and allows you to really get the subtleties of people's, you know, people, even just people's facial expression or the way they deliver their lines. Right. And I, I, I saw doubt on Broadway. And so when I saw the movie, it was interesting what John Patrick Shanley didn't do. You know, he doesn't really open the play up at all. I mean, no. they're outside for a minute. She's, she's walking outside and, 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 you know, with, with Viola Davis and so on, but they don't really go that far. And for the most part, it takes place in the school and these different scenes where you have this kind of, and, and it works because it is claustrophobic between, you know, Meryl Streep's nun, who I said in my review sounds like Bugs Bunny, because <laughs> she does, and, and, and Philip Seymour Hoffman's priest, and everything that he does that's kind of, I don't want to, gimmicky is a bad word, but I'm going to say gimmicky, is kind of in service to that room so the light her light keeps going you you blew out my light she says you know (laughs) and everything that he's doing around these characters is not drawing attention away from them it's almost like he's throwing something at them and they're just using it you know inside of their characters but it doesn't make the play seem any bigger than 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 what is you know when i saw it on stage um that's why i had him sign my copy of doubt i have the play i had him sign my copy of the play the, I mean, one of the beauties of of this movie is anytime they're not in one room, they just move to another room. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't go, they don't do a whole lot of like Aaron Sorkin walk and talks in this movie. Um, I think the only time we really get showy is when uh, when Phil Seymour Hoffman is giving his sermon and he's in the church and there's like a little bit of a like kind of a visual essay going on in the background of feathers blowing around in the wind. But right. generally speaking, this movie, along with as I said, the fact that these these 
nuns are playing it in habits and he's playing it in his robes for the most part. It is really a clinic on how actors can work from just the neck up. And uh, yeah, I, you know, it's a movie I don't think people thought about in a minute. So when I saw another movie based on a play, I was like, let's talk about this movie based on a play. Yeah. Give me one more. Well, we're going to stay in, in, in play territory. I, I thought of Fences. Ooh. I thought of the, the, the Denzel's adaptation of Fences. Now, I saw Fences with Denzel and Viola. I saw Fences with Mary Alice and James Earl Jones. I saw the original production of You're Fences. turning this episode into a drinking game. You know that, right? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's totally cool. I just I'm wanted, just wanted to delight it. No, no, I love it. It's It needs to happen more often. So please go on. And why I thought of Fences, and I love August Wilson, and, and it took me 30 years to see every one of his plays on stage, but I did. I saw everyone. Chitney was the last one, the one that always eluded me. And he did a production with Andre Holland uh, a couple of years ago, and I went to it. As I finally finished this circle of August Wilson plays. But Fences, the movie, again, we're talking about a play that's been turned into a movie. We're also talking about black people talking to each other. And you have Denzel, you have Stephen McKinley Henderson, you have uh, the son, uh, Jovan Adepo. Uh, they're talking to each other, interacting as men. And then you have Viola Davis, she's kind of the wild card in this, and that she is almost like the Jim Brown character in One Night in Miami, with one exception, she gets to have her big giant moment where she basically pulls mm. this house of cards that these men have built around themselves. She pulls it down. And she basically kind of like everything that they've been doing is in some ways a bit of a performance. And she is the one that kind of zeroes in and makes everybody honest. Well, she makes makes Troy Maxson honest. I mean, and, and it makes him look at his relationships with, with his friend, with his son, she is the one that kind of pulls everything in. She's that. She's like the Malcolm X scene in in in, in One Night in Miami, where Malcolm X goes after Sam Cooke. Uh, I thought of, of of Troy being basically taken down by his wife, and she finally has had enough. And she's like, "I've been here with you. I've suffered with you all this time, and you can't see what I've done because you're selfish." And again, it also is a in some ways a safe space for people to be honest. And, and black. And also it talks about civil rights and it talks about what was going on at that particular time. And in, in One Night in Miami, it's not about dreams being deferred or destroyed. In Fences, it is about that. But at the same token, they're still taking place in a similar era. And the same problems that they're talking about in this film, they're talking about in One Night in Miami. You know what's strange? I feel as though the film adaptation of Fences... And this is a strange thing to say, given that the movie is what five years old, not even four years old. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was ahead of its time. I, I I feel as though that movie is something that you know you could you could release it now, and it would probably hit even harder. And you could release it in two more years from now and it would hit even harder, which is really, really strange to say on an existing play, on right. a play that's years and years old. But it, it's it's crazy when it comes to the the film adaptation of, of some of these properties, um, the moment that you choose to put them out there into the world, I feel is really as important as the fact that you want to put them out there into the world at all. Right. Um, and Fences, 
as a movie, I mean, as a mo- as as a play that's set in the past, as a play that is from the past. Um, yeah, not even five years old, and yet, if you release that movie at the end of 2020, it would hit harder than it did in 2016, which already hit really bloody hard right. in 2016. You know, it's that's I think. First of all, that's that's the the sign of really powerful work that it just gains more intensity as time goes on, um, and, and and a really important film. Oh yeah, I mean I, I agree, and I think that with Ma Rainey, kind of it, it points out just how powerful August Wilson's work is and how timeless it is. Um, I'm looking forward to Denzel's next productions of because he's doing all ten of them. Uh, oh wow! Ten of the plays, and you know there've been other productions of the piano lesson. There've been two, which, which is my favorite August Wilson play uh, of the ten. Um, and I've also seen that on on, on Broadway as well on the revival. Um, Take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> and so sorry. And um, no, no. I'm, again, I'm loving it. Keep it going. <laughs> and so you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing some of the ones that you know I think are a little more flawed. How they handle them. In you know in twenty in the twenty twenties as opposed to when I saw them on on stage, how they're going to actually present them. So I'm looking forward to that, and I think Wilson's work is timeless in terms of even though his movie his plays take place in a specific decade, what he's talking about is the human condition underneath. Rather, you know what's happening for for black folks in his plays, you still can identify with them. They're just as uh, you know. Just as kind of the human about the human condition is something by Eugene O'Neill, you know, yeah. by Tennessee Williams. It still manages to be about a human being. There's a specific things that go with this human being, but at the end of the day, if you strip it down to its barest essence, it's about humanity. It's about the human feeling, about human experience. Yeah, no, it's it's a great movie. That that would be a great double feature with One Night in Miami. That's for damn sure. Um, my final choice to go along with one night in Miami. Um, I wanted to think about another boxing movie. Um, even though there's not a whole lot of boxing in one night in Miami, which is a pretty, you know, it's a pretty ballsy choice for both the play and the, and the movie. Um, and there's a lot of course, there's all kinds of boxing movies that one could choose from, but I went back to one that I rewatched proper for the first time, uh, last year. I think I'd, I'd seen pieces of it before, but I, I wanted to watch it and give it my proper attention. Um, film from 2000 directed by Karen Kusuma. I thought about girl fight, Starring Michelle Rodriguez, yeah, I like that. Movie. Um, and yeah, it's 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 aged really, really well. Um, it was you know people may not realize it was kind of the it was the coming out party for Michelle Rodriguez. It was her first major role. Um, it's it's a movie where she's a she's a teenager who wants to train as a boxer, and you know that that's kind of going on in the background of a lot of the movie. Like if for a movie that's about boxing, it doesn't have a boatload of boxing sequences. Like it's certainly not rocky it's certainly not um you know raging bull which i think the best boxing movies that's the key you know anytime you get too much of the sport that's a t- that's a that's usually the sign of a bad script um it's it's got to be about the athlete and less about the sport um girl fight uh kind of like one night in miami has a lot to say about gender roles you know about i mean she's a she's a latinx girl um, being raised in a very, very obviously patriarchal family, um, and what a woman is supposed to do, how a woman is supposed to conduct herself, um, and obviously, One Night in Miami has a lot to say about how men are supposed to conduct themselves and what they're supposed to do. Um, less, far subtler 
than girl fight. Like girl fight, that is what is completely on its mind. Right. Um, you know, and on top of all that, um, you have the director, Karen Kusuma, who kind of had a, a weird path in her career. Like, I mean, she, she had this movie and she came out like gangbusters and everybody was talking about how she was going to be this great artist and this great storyteller. And she was handed some curious projects. She was handed Jennifer's body and she was handed Eon flux. And those two movies had some very poor reception, even though Jennifer's body is now getting its flowers so much time later as, as again, being ahead of its time. And here's another woman behind the camera who like Claire Denis at the beginning of this sequence challenges the notion of what sort of stories women tell. If anybody has seen um, her most recent film destroyer from 2018, that is a very, very hard edgy, really, really tough movie. And a lot of her movies, like if I I was to kind of choose one word to describe her, the the bulk of her canon she tells tough stories yeah i agree she tells tough stories i i am a sucker for boxing movies i i mentioned that in my reviews of boxing movies that you know not to say you shouldn't trust me but the this is my this is the sweetest spot that i have i love boxing movies if i love a boxing movie take it with a slight grain of salt if i dislike a boxing movie it's probably worse than <laughs> and, I, and I said it. Something about uh, being a boxer in it. There has to be some modicum of self hatred hmm. in it because you're putting yourself out there to be hit. And you have to kind of. And, and I've always been fascinated. Raging Bull, I think, is the greatest example of something like, like this kind of concept I have in my head about boxing as a science and as what you would do. There's a documentary called Champs. There's a great line I always quote where where one of the talking heads says, nobody rich ever took up boxing. And Hmm. that's because you you could make money with your hands. Sometimes that's all you had. You know, you could beat somebody and become the heavyweight champion and make money. And, you know, you didn't need a college education to whoop somebody's ass. So, you know, so I think this is kind of that. It's not a romanticized notion of boxing that I have, but it's always fascinating. Uh, the boxing movies and characters, and like movies like the setup, and, and so Girl Fight, you know, has like Million Dollar Baby has a, a female boxer, and I always kind of like women beating people up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. because it challenge because it challenges the convention, right? Like that's that's one of the things I love about some of these stories of you know like how how men are supposed to act, how women are supposed to act is let's take, let, like, let's take all these conventions and just rip them up, you know, and, and show you what people can do. Very cool. Man. This is, this has been like one of my favorite episodes in quite some time, man. I like, I, I was, I was really excited about bringing you on the show and I can tell you, you have not disappointed me. I am just mad that it's taken me 252 episodes to invite you in the first place. I wish it had been 255. Cause that would have tied into computers. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll bring you, I'll bring you back to talk about something else on 255. That is episode 252 of the Matinee Cast. I am so thankful for Odie for coming by. Come on back on Monday, February 8th for two episode 253. We will be discussing Promising 
promising young woman. Odie can be found at RogerEbert.com. Do you got uh, something coming up that people can look forward to? I'm doing a seminar uh, for the Coolidge Virtual Seminar Series. And the Q&A for that will be on March 11th. But if you go, to when, when they release the promo, you'll be able to sign up for it. And you can watch my lecture when it comes out. And then on March 11th, there'll be a live Q&A for an hour. I'll answer questions. I'm going to be talking about Shaft, of all things, which ties it together for you and me. Uh, the neat little the package, like a Swiss watch, man. Yes. Um, I will include all kinds of links as they come available and I'll make sure that I tweet them as they come available. Um, and if people want to follow you on Twitter, if they're not already following you on Twitter, where can they find you? I'm Odinator, O-D-I-E-N-A-T-O-R. Come with me if you want to. Thank you very much. My site, of course, is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple, Google, um, all the usual places. Plus, as I mentioned off the top of the show, the new places, TuneIn, Radio Public, CastBox, and Podchaser. If you happen to have a space that my show is not in, despite all of those, let me know. I'll put it there. Uh, everything, of course, gives you ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on the hell were we talking about on one night in miami <laughs> uh, it's been a long show man feedback on one night in miami can be left in the comment section of the site you can email ryan at the matinee.ca twitter i am matinee underscore ca or facebook.com slash dark matinee any final thoughts mr henderson uh, no thank you again for having me on this was great and i hope people watch the movie and um, get something out of it my absolute pleasure for Odie. i'm ryan we'll see you at the matinee